Mike, I can tell you were intentional in choosing those songs. No? <laughs> I couldn't have picked two better songs to, uh, comp- uh, to compliment the, the text that we're going to be looking at tonight. I had the privilege of singing those songs, having marinated in this text all week. So um, I was actually thinking uh, this week, and I actually forgot to text Mike that if I was like, man, I, 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 w- I hope we could sing um, Christ, Our Hope, and Life and Death. Uh, that's all I could think about this week as I was preparing, and, and the Lord knew, and so he designed it perfectly that way. So, well, we're back in Philippians, so you can go ahead and open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. And uh, we, I've just been really enjoying this study, and I um, hope you have too. hope it's been as helpful to you as it's been to me. And it's been a very, very timely study for my own heart. And uh, he's been using this letter, the Lord's been using this letter in my life to really provide stability and joy in, uh, in these, un, these, these unstable times, if you want to call it that. We're living in uncertain days, and that is exactly what Paul intended in this letter. He wrote this, church to put spir- he wrote this letter to the church to put some spiritual steel in their backbones, the backbones of this Philippian church, they faced uncertain and, and scary days. Persecution was rising. The Roman Empire was beginning to crack down on Christians. And they were tempted to be afraid and shrink back. And it doesn't take much to realize that we're living in very uncertain times ourselves. Although we've never been able to predict the future... Our lives in the West have seemed fairly stable. There's been no life-threatening wars, at least not on the homeland. No major famines. A fairly reliable governmental system of checks and balances. There have been just laws, due process in the court system. We've had medicines available to us. We've had access to medical facilities, and most of all, we've had religious freedom in the West. But over the last few years, it's felt as though the ground's been shifting under our feet. Have you felt that? I've certainly felt that. We completely shut down our economy for months on end because of a global pandemic. And then that disturbed the supply chains, and we've been feeling that backlash ever since that that moment. And then to make matters worse, Russia attacked Ukraine, launched an ongoing war that's caused massive devastation, the worst of it being the loss of innocent human lives. But that war has also caused ripple-out effects, and that's been felt all over the world. It's fractured the global economy. It's led to massive inflation. Our food bills have almost doubled, and they say they're going to probably double again. Recession is looming. Energy costs rise as Russia cuts off its pipeline to European countries. Germany's on the, on the brink of falling out of the EU. Food shortages are inevitable since farmers can't get fertilizer from Ukraine, which means far less yield in the coming months. We haven't begun to feel that yet, but we will. And not only are we wondering what the future is going to look like economically, 
But as Christians, we're also wondering what we're going to face in the coming years, maybe even in the coming months. The culture is turning against us quickly on several fronts. Free speech is heavily under attack, and especially any speech that condemns the sort of psychological self, those sinful self-expressions that people want to identify with. And we wonder, at least I do, we wonder when, when and how this will lead to hostility. How soon will it happen? What will be the consequences? And the reality is, we don't know what's going to happen in the days ahead. We don't know. We can predict. We know we're facing an unstable and uncertain future. But one of the beautiful things about this letter is that Paul is equipping us to face these days with courage, and don't miss it, with joy. Paul's future was very uncertain and scary too. When he wrote that letter, when he wrote this letter to the Philippians, he was in one of the worst prisons, and he was awaiting a trial that would determine whether he lived or died. How much longer will I have to stay in prison? Will my trial date be delayed? What kinds of hardships will I have to suffer in the days ahead? Will I get a fair trial, or will my enemies falsely accuse me? Will I be released or executed? So from a human perspective, his life literally hung in the balance. And that's what makes his response so shocking in the first chapter of his letter. Although Paul's future was just as uncertain as ours, Paul wanted the Philippians to know that he was facing it with joy. And in this paragraph, he tells the Philippians how he's thinking about the coming days. How he's thinking about his future. How he's thinking about his fate. How he's thinking about even possible execution. It's an incredible paragraph. And I think he took the time to pen this paragraph for the Philippians and all who would read it, like us afterwards, as a model. He wants to model for us how to face an uncertain future. How to face scary times. And he wants us to face it with joy. Alright, so let's look at the text. Philippians 1, beginning at that last half of verse 18. So probably most of your Bibles will have a paragraph marker there. I think that's right. He says, yes. ESV says, yes, and I will rejoice. Verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to choose... If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all, 
for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So, in this beautiful paragraph, Paul shares with us how he's facing an incredibly scary future with confident joy. And in particular, he lets us in to some of these realities, these future realities that he's clinging to, to the truth he's fixed on, the hope that he's constantly renewing his mind in. And that leads to joy. So tonight, I want to draw out four glorious future realities that are going to help us face the coming days with joy. I want to look at some of these realities because these are what we're going to need as Paul continues to equip us to face our own trials and the own uncertainties of the days to come. And if these sink down deep in our hearts, we're going to see a lot of fruit, a lot of joy, and a lot of gospel progress right here in our sphere of influence in Lynchburg. All right, here's the first reality that will produce joy in our hearts, and it's this. Salvation will be the end result of our suffering. So in trial and hardships, we're facing those, and they're coming in in, in the future. We can know, we must know, that salvation is going to be the end result of that suffering. That's exactly what Paul says here, and it produces joy. He says, yes, I will rejoice. Why? For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this, it's a reference to his circumstances, this will turn out for my deliverance. As Paul faced the future, as he faced a future of uncertainty, a future of tremendous pressure to forsake the Lord, he knew that one thing was certain. The trials and pressures would actually result in his final deliverance. Paul knew he would be safely kept and ultimately rescued. And we need to take up the same perspective as we look toward the future, no matter what we might face. All right, so let's unpack these verses just a little bit more because there there might be a few questions popping up in your mind as, as I read that. All right, notice just initially that Paul says he's rejoicing because he knows that he will be delivered. You see that? See how the ESV translates that word, deliverance. But what does he mean by that? What does he mean by deliverance? Well, deliverance could mean released from prison. You know, you're praying for me, and the Spirit's going to help me, and that's going to result in my release from prison. That's how some people take this. But I think it's better to take this as his final deliverance. So as a reference to his ultimate or his future salvation. I think that's what he's talking about here. And I think the context, as we'll see as we work through it, makes that clear. This is a deliverance that happens even through death. He's going to talk about that in a moment. Now you might be thinking, now hang on, isn't Paul already saved? He already, hasn't salvation already happened for Paul? Why, why are we talking about future salvation? Well, yes, we are certainly 
rescued now. We're saved now. We're saved the moment we come to Christ. Paul writes in Colossians that we've already been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son in Colossians chapter 1. But there's another sense of salvation that looks to the future. It looks to the full realization, we might say, of that salvation. It looks to the the fact when we're raised from the dead, when our faith is no longer threatened, when we're completely and finally glorified. And the Bible describes this as salvation. And we might think of it as sort of the full realization of it, the ultimate reality of our salvation. So in a way, we are currently saved, but our salvation is still in progress. To be, to be completed on that final day. Notice how not only will we be delivered, but those future hardships, Paul says, are, gonna, are what God uses to help get us there. The trials that threaten to undo us will actually strengthen us and result in our salvation. That's what Paul's getting at here. Now, it's harder to see that in, in the English text so let me give you a little more wooden translation here. Paul, you, could see, you could render this verse like this. For I want you to know that this, that means his circumstances, that this will turn into, it'll lead to, it'll result in salvation for me. I'll say it again. I want you to know that this, meaning his circumstances, it's the this back from verse 12, the what has happened to me from verse 12. I want you to know that this will turn into or lead to or better result in salvation for me. So what's he saying? He's saying his imprisonment, his sufferings there, they're going to ultimately result in his final deliverance. Let me put it this way. Instead of causing him to forsake the faith, they're going to be strengthening his faith. As we've seen, his hardships are producing fruit in his life. His hardships are building his hope for the next life. His sufferings are propelling him along to look more and more toward that final day. In the hands of God, our trials are not going to capsize us. They're going to be used as his tool to promote our faith and propel us toward that final salvation. So, for us, when we look toward the future, when you say wake up in the middle of the night and you're scared of what we might face, we can know that our trials are in God's good hands. Our trials are one of His instruments to strengthen our faith and not to destroy it. They are our assistants in helping us persevere to that final day. Now you're probably sitting here thinking, what? Like, trials are hard. Like, these are not good. How do do I know I won't forsake the faith? How do I know it won't get too difficult for me? I think I can barely persevere today as it is, and it's not even that difficult. I'm a weakling. Those are the kind of things I think. And Paul addresses this concern. 
Paul knows that he's not able to persevere by himself. He knows that the Spirit will strengthen him and the Spirit will strengthen him through the prayers of the church. Look with me in verse 19. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that, here it is, through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul knows that the way God will help him get to that final day is through, first, the prayers of his people. Even the mighty Apostle Paul knew that he desperately needed the church. He needed the Philippians' prayers. In fact, this is probably a subtle reminder for them to keep on praying for him. (laughs) Why is that? Because God's going to use their prayers, Paul knows, to keep Paul faithful in prison. But how's he going to do that? What would the answer to that prayer look like? He says, it's through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He links these these together tightly. The prayers of the people and the help of the Spirit. The Spirit responds to the church's prayers and provides incredible help for Paul. Now, the way this is translated, it sounds weak, like help from the Spirit. Um, but when you compare it to the Greek word he uses, it's, it's, a, it's much stronger. He's saying here that the Spirit gives him abundant provision. Sort of the idea. Just this like truckloads of help through the prayers as he answers the prayers of his people. The idea here is that we're strengthened by the Spirit's power to persevere as he responds to the prayers of his saints. But I love this. I love Paul's attitude here because he knows it's not ultimately on him to persevere. When we think, how am I going to do it? How am I going to stand up if I'm put in prison one day? How am I not going to forsake Christ? Paul would say, because you have the Spirit. Because the church is praying. Because the Spirit will strengthen you. And it is so encouraging to know that the Spirit will strengthen me in that day to persevere and to put my hope there, not in my strength. It's encouraging to know that Paul apparently knew that he was weak too. (laughs) And he's requesting the prayers of the saints so that he can depend on the Spirit's power as well in the midst of these circumstances. But it's also sobering, too, to know that my prayers play a part in helping others persevere. That's an incredible incentive to pray, isn't it? The Holy Spirit will respond to your prayers and bring abundant provision to His children. He'll bring abundant power to persevere in the midst of their affliction. So next time you're tempted not to pray or to 
do something else instead of interceding in that moment that you've set aside, remember this. Remember the fact that some of your friends, some of the members here at this church, could be lagging behind and they could use your spiritual prayers, not because you're strong, but because the Spirit's going to respond to those prayers to give them strength. So let's make sure we're praying for each other. Now, if we zoom back out, we see that Paul faces an uncertain and possibly deadly future. He sees what's coming for him, potentially, but he sees what's coming behind it. Right? So he sees what's coming in the trials, maybe execution, but he sees something that's coming behind it, like a tidal wave, that's about to eclipse that, and it's his full salvation. This is a terrible illustration because it's so trite compared to what we're talking about. But it's like your finals week, right before Christmas. And you're trying to get through it, right? And what do you think about? In three days, this is going to be over, right? It's what gives you motivation and incentive to stay up if you need to stay up or put in the extra work because you know you're about to head back and experience Christmas, right? You look beyond the exams to what's coming as motivation for the present. But we have something far greater than break. We have the new creation. We have a resurrection and life to its fullest. The very presence of Christ and reigning with Him forever, as we're going to see in a moment. And that will bring us joy as we face food shortages. That will bring joy as we face war. That will bring joy as we face imprisonment for the sake of Christ now. Because of what's behind it. The new creation. Well, we're never going to face war. We're never going to face famine. We're never going to face imprisonment because Christ will be on the throne forever. And He will make all things right. So we're just getting started, all right? All right and I left half the stuff behind, okay? Forgot about, the, forgot about all that. I'll leave it up there for you. Jog in your memory. So that's Paul's first reality, we might call his first joy-inducing reality. The fact that salvation is coming. But this text keeps going. And there's a second reality that emerges from this paragraph. What percentage of you are done writing? I see, you're you're still going, so I'll, I'll wait a second. Leave you on a cliffhanger? going to say? There's a second reality here. If you missed it, just tell me. I can, I can get, it, get it back to you. And that's this. This is the reality. Produces joy. Christ can be magnified no matter what we face. Christ can be honored. He can receive glory from our lives no matter whether we live or die. And that's what Paul's saying and modeling for us right here in verse 20. He knows this is going to turn out for his deliverance, his final salvation. 
He says, as it is my eager expectation, verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Christ can be magnified no matter what we're facing. Life or death. Paul knew it. This is another incredibly astounding verse. That's because Paul's confident that the Spirit's going to strengthen him to persevere, and he's also confident that every situation in his life was going to ultimately result in Christ being honored. That's the essence of what he's saying here. If Paul lives, Christ is magnified as he continues living for him. If Paul dies, Christ is magnified as he shows that the king is worth dying for. When this becomes our greatest goal, like it was for Paul, the magnification of Christ, then it transforms the way we look at the future. Even future hardship. Because both our life and our death become the stage for the radical display of Christ's glory, His worth, His value, broadcasted to the world. So, let's again just make a few observations about this verse. First, I want you to notice that as the Spirit is strengthening Paul for this final deliverance, it's coming out in tangible ways right now in real time. The church is praying, Paul's being strengthened, and what, what's coming out is this convictional language here. It's coming out in what Paul desperately wants, what he's confident about. And he's confident in, in really two things, two, a negative and a positive way of saying the same thing. Okay? The negative way, he's confident that he won't be ashamed. And then he's also confident, positively, that Christ will be honored in his body and life and death. So let's, let's unpack those. Paul's confident that he won't be ashamed, he says here in this verse. It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. What does he mean? Well, in this context, he's talking about living in disobedience to Christ's desires and having to stand before Jesus on that final day in shame that he wasted his life. Ashamed. Ashamed that he squandered opportunities to really live for what mattered because he loved himself more than Christ. Ashamed because he lived for his own agenda rather than Christ's agenda. Ashamed because he wasted his time fretting and anxious rather than joyfully courageous. But get this. Paul is confident that he won't be ashamed. But that won't happen on the final day. Why? Because he goes on to say that his central goal is that Christ is honored in his life. What got him up in the morning was to see Christ honored. As the Spirit strengthens Paul, he's developing a conviction in his heart to live for the honor 
of his king. To orient his life to a more noble, more glorious, and as we're going to see, more fruitful and joy-filled goal. It's a goal that's far greater than his own measly self-seeking ambitions. It's a goal that Christ is magnified, that our lives and words are billboards to show off the greatness of Christ. So we have to start by asking ourselves, is this our greatest goal? Because if it's not, you'll be afraid. You'll be afraid of the future. But if it is, you'll recognize that Christ can be magnified, that the goal can be accomplished no matter what we face. Now this is not a one and done goal. <laughs> right? Like I becomes my goal to live for Christ's honor. Check that box. This is a daily fight. Every time you're mortifying your, your desire for self, your desire for sin, and your desire to live for Christ, you're strengthening this desire to live for His honor. We'll get into this through the letter of Philippians. But suffice it to say here that once this is our greatest goal, it transforms how we think about the future and how we think about our future lives and our future death. It transforms even how we approach our hardships. Do you realize if we have some type of economic collapse in the U.S., church will have, an, will have untold opportunities to put Christ's glory on display. Like way more than we have right now. Doesn't mean we don't have opportunities now. We do. Lots of them. But we will have more. Do you realize if our religious freedoms are, un, are, are undermined and the government cracks down on us even more, that we'll have a chance like never before in the U.S. to testify to the goodness, glory, and worth of Christ. Now, none of us want hardship to come. I'm certainly not praying for it. But if God does bring it, doesn't that reality excite you a little bit? To think about how many lives could be eternally changed if we're willing to lay ours down. You see, Paul wasn't scared of the future. Paul was able to rejoice because whatever the future brought, it could not undermine his central goal of his life. In fact, whether he lived or whether he was executed, both brought amazing opportunities to bring Christ glory. To live, he says, is Christ. His entire life on earth is bound up with Jesus. With knowing Him. With rejoicing in Him. With serving His people. With working hard for Him at His job as He made tents. With extending His gospel message. His life was Christ. All of Paul's life was bound up with the Savior. And not just because he was an apostle. Because he was a Christian. As this reality, the reality that Christ can be magnified no matter what we face as that reality starts to settle in 
you will find tremendous stability in your life. Tremendous joy, even in the face of adversity. Why? Because of how God can work in it and through it. Remember, we talked about this a while back, but he's not working in spite of our challenges. He's got like a roadblock. He's got to, he's got to run around it. He is working even more, Paul says, in and through them. He didn't want the Philippians to misunderstand his imprisonment. Remember back in verse 12? He says, what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel all the more. Even more than when I was free, running around, planting churches. God is working even more through these these trials to promote His honor and glory. Now, not only does death give us a unique opportunity to honor Christ, but there is a third reality driving Paul's vision of the future, and the third reality that's producing joy in his heart, and it is this. Death is far better than this life. Death is far better than this life. Now, Paul's going to go back and forth here between living and dying. So we're going to talk about living in our, in our final reality. But as I read this paragraph, kind of listen for these statements about death and how Paul's thinking about it. Verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to choose to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. Far better. So Paul knew, believed deeply, that death is far better than this life. Now as we read these verses, Paul's perspective is almost shocking here. I know we run around and we say these verses a lot, but this is, you have to let this hit you. He looks death in the face, and he says, yes, this is what I desire most. I want to pass through that cold shadow because of what's on the other side. Because it's so much more valuable. So superior to this life. Because that's where Christ is. And it's this reality, His view of what's on the other side of the door of death, that produced incredible boldness, incredible passion, and incredible joy in the face of His execution. If we want what broke out in Rome to break out in Lynchburg, we cannot be afraid to die. We pray for revival, we pray for these things to happen, and we sit here afraid to die. But let's quickly unpack a few of these statements that Paul makes here about death, which reveals how he's thinking 
about this dreadful reality. And it's the perspective that we have to adopt too if we don't have it already. All right? I'm just going to outline them here, right like we see them in the text. To die is gain, he says in verse 21. For death to be gain, or a gain, it means it's more profitable, it's more valuable. And that flies in the face of how everyone on the planet thinks about death and approaches it. Death is not gain. Death is a terror, and understandably so. We were not created to die. It's unnatural. And for those outside of Christ, they have no idea what awaits them even though in their hearts they know they're guilty and are going to have to give some kind of account. But for Paul and for every believer, death represents an inestimable gain. But we're tempted to think about it in the opposite. We're tempted to think that life is gain. And life after death is some kind of lesser existence. Like we're floating around, kind of outside time. What does that even mean, right? Almost in some kind of existential nirvana. You know, like what's going on? Like we, it's just just like, what does that, what do these things even mean? And when I catch myself thinking this way sometimes, and, I, and I kind of that fear to die kind of gets in there, I often kind of picture myself in sort of the shoes of the nation of Israel, standing outside the land, too scared to go in, because I don't know what I'm going to face when I get in there. And saying, I'd rather stay in the wilderness rather than go into the land of milk and honey. It was an exceedingly good land, the Bible says, a land that was much more abundant than the wilderness that they had come through. This life of sin and suffering is like that wilderness, but worse, that Israel passed through. And it's to be eclipsed by Canaan's abundance. The moment we die, Paul says, our state dramatically increases. It's a gain. It's a... unimaginable upgrade from where we're currently at. And that's because, as Paul says in a moment, we're with Christ. He says that in verse 23. To die is to be with Christ. All that death does is death takes us to meet our Savior face to face. Death takes us by the hand to the great lover of our souls. Death takes us to our greatest friend, to our most glorious King, 
to the one we've served who will reward us far more than we ever could imagine or deserve, to the one who will share everything with us, this king has known you forever. He created you for himself. He designed you purposefully and intentionally. He pursued you when you were dead. He personally died for you. He made you alive. He has walked with you every step of your life. He knows you better than you could ever know yourself. He has cried with you when your heart has broken. He has rejoiced with you when you have been elated. You cannot even begin to comprehend how much He loves you. And it's this one, this Savior, this friend, this God that death brings you to. Yes, Christ is with us now through His Spirit. But Paul knows this is not the fullest existence. This is not our fullest joy. Hallelujah. (laughs) This is not our greatest moment, but it is coming. And it's coming when we see Him face to face. We sit with Him when we talk with Him, when He takes us through His kingdom and He gives us His kingdom. Paul knows that being with Christ is far better. It's far better. Like he says in verse 23. So how do you think about death? Does it scare you? Christ has defanged the beast. He's rendered him unable to harm you. He has overcome our last and greatest enemy. You have nothing to fear. When it comes to the future, maybe you're afraid of dying for Christ in a prison. Maybe you're afraid of losing your job and not being able to provide for a future family. What's underneath that? What's the worst case scenario? Death. But death is the portal to something far better. As we adopt that perspective, as we learn to quell our fears, what we'll see growing in its place is a rising zeal. We will be bold in life because if the worst happens to us, if we die, it's only a gain. We'll also rejoice because we'll know that the worst circumstances will turn out for our greatest good, our greatest gain, an existence that's far better because it's an existence with Christ. Now, I was thought about blowing that out for you and talking about all the different stages of this existence. Um, 
but we'll save that for a future, future week because it is, it is some glorious reality there that as we enlarge our minds of what's coming, we'll desire it all the more. All right, there's a fourth reality that we've got to get through, and we'll get through it quickly. As significant as this perspective is on death, he didn't just have a good perspective of that. He did. But he also had this similar and glorious perspective on life. On this life, right now. And that leads to that fourth and final reality, and we could say it like this, more life means more fruit. More life lived, even in the wilderness, to keep with our analogy, means more fruitfulness in the wilderness on the way to Canaan. Again, pick this up with me in in verse 22. He's already told us to live as Christ, but he's going to expand on that in verse 22. He says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And that was such a strong desire for him that it, it, it created a conflict in his heart. He said, yet which I shall choose or literally prefer, that's probably better, which I shall prefer, Paul's not choosing his destiny, which I shall prefer, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between these two, of living a, a fruitful life now in the wilderness versus being united to Christ in glory. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So for Paul, even though death was far better, he describes in these verses an incredible tension in his heart. Even though he would rather be with Christ, he also knew that this life was valuable. But not because it's better than what's coming. It's valuable because there's a unique opportunity for fruit. And as we're going to see, according to Paul, this fruit is guaranteed. And when that reality sinks in, when we think of our lives in those terms... We're going to find that we face the future with joy. Because the future, even in an economic collapse or persecution, means more fruit. So let's look at all the ways that Paul describes his perspective on this life. To live means fruitful labor, he says in verse 22. It means fruitful labor. If I am to live in the flesh, verse 22... That means fruitful labor for me. Paul knew that if he went on living in this life, there would be eternal fruit. Now that almost sounds arrogant. When you slow down and you read this, and just his definitiveness about that, for me, life means fruit. You know, it's like, all right, wow. He's so confident that if he stays alive, there's going to be fruit. Like, it's inevitable. But he's not confident in himself. Paul is confident 
in Christ's ability to produce fruit through Him. Christ has promised to produce fruit through us as we yield to Him. So what fruit are we talking about? We know that Paul knows he will continue to grow, so that that could be the case when he's talking about this fruit. In that sense, there's going to be more fruit in his own life. That's definitely true, but I don't think that's what he has in mind in this text. I think what he has in mind here, when he says fruitful labor, is the fruit of people. The fruit of people. Both their conversion and planting churches, and also their maturity. We should say it especially their maturity, because we're going to see that. That's what he draws out at the end of this paragraph. So for Paul, that's fruit. People coming to know Jesus and people growing up in Christ. And he knows if he's left here, he's not executed, there will be a harvest in one way or another, whether he sees it or not. And even if he's left here in prison, because it's happening right now amongst the Praetorian Guard. So think of how motivating that is. The issue here is not that if we know what to say or we have you know, all the right skills and abilities and everything else, the issue is whether or not we're going to choose to be faithful and just yield ourselves to Jesus in these moments. Because if we do, if we're faithful in those mundane areas of life, those daily choices, the daily grind, fruit is guaranteed. If we're faithful in just simply trying to help other people the best we can, our current maturity level, right? If we're just if we're faithful in what we can do, fruitfulness is guaranteed. If we're just faithful in opening our mouths to share the gospel, fruit's guaranteed. Doesn't mean they're always going to be saved, right? But there's a confidence of Paul that Christ is going to accomplish his will. Even in the midst of these very difficult circumstances. So, to live means fruitful labor for Paul. It also, the way he describes it, is to live is often more necessary for other people. So Paul's desirous to be with Christ, but listen to what he says in verse 24. He says, I'm hard-pressed, verse 23. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But, verse 24, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So there is a reality that for Paul, part of what keeps him wanting to stay here is the responsibility he feels for other people. That's actually pretty relieving for me as as a dad and a husband, a pastor. I feel this tension of, yeah, I mean, I believe that, but Gosh, I don't want to leave them. And, I mean, yeah, do I want to see them get grow up, get married? Do I want to walk with my wife, you know, through the graying years? Of course I want to do all that. But the burden 
is their flourishing. There's a tension here in those we love, those we're responsible for, to want to see them grow. And that's what he means when he's talking about it being necessary that he's here. It's necessary, he says, for their progress and joy in the faith. Let me ask you a probing question. Is that why you want to stick around? Is that why you would want to live life instead of going to be with Christ? I know in my heart, my desires are often more oriented around me and these kind of perceived fulfillments that I, I want. You know, I think about when I was in your shoes. We want to stick around so we can get married. We want to stick around so we can have kids. We want to stick around so we can experience a career, make money, keep a home, whatever it is. These are all good and wonderful things. And I'm not minimizing those at all. These are, these are venues in which the Lord works and produces this very fruit that we're talking about. But for Paul... What ultimately motivated him to stay was the spiritual flourishing of others. As a husband and father then, my main motivation to stay should be for the spiritual flourishing of my wife and kids. As a pastor, it should be for the flourishing of you guys. There's nothing wrong with wanting good experiences, but we've got to remember that our greatest experiences are yet to come. That's the gain thing he's talking about earlier. There is a greater joy than marriage. There's a greater joy than children. There's a greater joy joy than a successful career. And that's coming as we pass through death. So then, the greatest motivation for us to stick around. The greatest one, and the only, but the greatest one, is the opportunity to help others flourish. And that's fruit. And notice that this flourishing, this progress in the faith, this maturing for the church in this case, this maturation, this progress, notice also what Paul's after. Their joy. Spiritual growth and spiritual maturity yields more joy. It yields more contentment, and that's a sermon all in itself. Okay, so I'm just going to leave that there. I just want to point that out to you, that that's, that's here and in the text. Because we sometimes think of holiness and those kinds of things as sort of a killjoy, but it is the opposite. For you t- seminary guys, this is a great motivation as you're thinking about pastoral ministry to shepherd for the joy of, of others. All right? So when we adopt this perspective on life, that, uh, that means more fruit. More life means more fruit. And as that reality sinks down deep about why we're here, we can face the future with joy. Because no matter what happens, God's going to produce fruit through it as we seek to trust Him and be faithful in it. He's going to produce this eternal fruit, fruit that's going to last. So, just wrapping up. 
Paul is holding himself out as a model. As a model for the Philippians, as a model for us today, as a model for how to face the future with joy. That's because how we think about life and how we think about death, that matters. And if we adopt these realities, if we make them our own convictions, we will become like Paul. We will be able to face an uncertain and often terrifying future with otherworldly joy. And the reality is, like we said earlier, we have to fight for these perspectives. These are not one and done because you heard Clay's sermon and think, I'm inoculated, ready to go. It has to become part of who you are. So if uh, fear of death is a struggle for you, write these realities down, review them every day. Remind yourself of, the, of them at the beginning of the day. Remind yourself of them about them at the end of each night. Take them to the Lord in prayer. These have to become part of who you are. Now, the rest of this letter is going to help us unpack that fight. Um, so I'm not going to get into that here. We're going to wrap it up. I just want to show you um, the path to living confidently and joyfully as you face the future. All right? Father, we know how much we need you in a situation like this, and we pray that your spirit would take your word and that you would help us just embrace these realities. Help us learn to take the next step in our lives to making these, uh, adopting these as our own and learning what it looks like as we study this book of Philippians, as we're in the church, as we're among one another to live out of these and from these realities. And uh, we pray it all in Christ's name, for your glory. Amen.